This is Exploring Boys Education, the International Boys Schools Coalition monthly podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Collins. Together with thought leaders and educators from around the world, we'll dive deep into the evolving landscape of boys' education. We'll discuss its challenges and highlight the innovations driving its future. So whether you're a school leader, a teacher, parent, or just someone interested in the world of boys' education, you've come to the right place. This first episode of Season 5 will be aired in two parts. In part one, Matt Engler-Carlson shares so many important insights about nurturing boys' mental and physical well-being. We focus our conversation on healthy masculinities, common misconceptions about boys and men's mental health, and fostering school cultures that allow boys to feel comfortable expressing vulnerability and seeking help. Before Matt and I speak, however, I'd like to welcome IBSC Executive Director Tom Batty, Back to the podcast for the IBSC Newsreel. Thank you, Bruce, and welcome all to a new season of Exploring Boys Education. Later in this episode, Bruce speaks with Matt Engler-Carlson, Professor and Chair of Department of Counselling at California State University Fullerton and Men's Mental Health Researcher at Mental. Before handing back to Bruce, I can inform that since its launch in April 2019, this podcast has featured 113 guests and garnered close to 24,000 unique downloads. Our thanks go to all who have contributed and dialed in and to Bruce Collins here in the office for making all possible. This episode is our 53rd and we look forward to bringing you more insights into boys and their education in the months ahead. I send my sincere thanks to Matt Engler-Carlson for giving time and mind to IBSC as he shares his wisdom on the mind-body connection in boys' development. Your willingness to help us learn is greatly appreciated, Matt. It's wonderful to be speaking with you again, Matt. In our previous conversation, I was just so... um, inspired by some of the thoughts that you were sharing and and I'm excited to have you on the podcast and share some of your thoughts around this very important topic with with our audience, with boys, schools, teachers um, globally. But before we dive into the actual conversation, I'd love to just hear a little bit more about the Center for Boys and Men um, that you are a co-director of and Maybe you could also share with us what inspired you to um, be part of this this initiative. Absolutely, Bruce, and, and thanks for having me here. Um, I really enjoyed our last conversation as well, and I think any opportunity just to have kind of an open conversation about, honestly, things we usually don't talk about or take for granted, I think is always helpful. Um, in terms of me... Uh, I've been working in this field for over two decades. And so um, I think I came to it kind of naturally, um, meaning that my father was was my school counselor. And so I grew up, honestly, I grew up around school counseling and I grew up around people and professionals in the 70s who were kind of at the forefront of what at that point was called childhood guidance. 
Um, and so I, in a way, grew up in a household in which the notion of having someone come into the classroom and talk about feelings and friendships and empathy and actually wellness is as we called it back then, um, was kind of quite normal. And so I naturally kind of came into the field of, uh, of counseling and psychology and, uh, my first kind of, my first two kind of uh, jobs, actually, the first one was in health psych. So I have a master's in health psych and began to get pretty interested in kind of biopsychosocial functioning. And then I moved in, into school counseling, which which I was a school counselor. And so, um, so I think that my approach is informed by being with, with students and teachers and parents and administrators. Um, and then for the past 20 plus years, I've worked, I worked as an academic. And so I, uh, I, I teach at Cal State Fullerton in the Department of Counseling, and I train therapists uh, to work in community settings and, and school settings. And I became really interested in kind of the health of men um, about two decades ago, then realized that it was, there was actually was a area of scholarship in this field that at that point was called, called the new psychology and metamasculinity. Uh, I became just voracious in reading everything I could possibly read um, to know as much as I could. Uh, and then I've really spent the good part of my career. What I would say is educating, helping, helping professionals. And I would say allied professionals, meaning it counselors, psychologists, psychiatrists, teachers, school psychologists, nurses, anyone who has engagement with boys and men um, about how you engage with them in, in healthier ways. Uh, and so with the Center for Boys and Men, that was kind of a, a very natural growth out of kind of what I was doing. Um, I've always had kind of a community focus. I think it comes from probably from my father. Um, honestly, he was a rather prominent Adlerian psychologist, um, and Alfred Adler, uh, really promoted this notion around social connectedness. And so I think I've always been interested in, in a way it's great to have information, but if you don't share it, what's the use? And so my center is a nonprofit center to essentially give away information, <laughs> um, which is, which is scholarship and ideas. And so we posted conferences and I do workshops and, um, and in that sense, like I've just tried to find ways to kind of, how do you, how do you take information that maybe exists in academic journals or kind of research and how do you, how do you disseminate it out to, to larger masses of people? It strikes me as so interesting, just as you shared about your, your father, I can imagine that back in those days, that wasn't the norm in terms of particularly boys um, coming into a space where they could share emotion and vulnerability. I think as a young boy, I, I, I lived in my father's shadow, so to speak. Like I just tagged along with him everywhere. And, um, you know, he was a, he was a, a runner in the seventies and it became a marathoner and became rather obsessed with it. And, um, and uh, I would say, like, I was made to run with him <laughs> in many ways. And 
But if you, if you jog with someone, you realize that you spend a lot of time talking. And so I would actually jog with my dad a lot and we would just talk about things and he was always very interested in me. And, and I think that was just really wonderful, you know, in terms of having that, that exposure with my dad and then, um, and then kind of seeing what he kind of did. So I kind of would see him give workshops and I'd be back in the back of the class. And, um, and actually my sister and I were some of the test cases for some of the childhood guidance materials. Like they had puppets and stories and books and, and they test them on us. Like, you know, but on the same side of that, it's actually interesting. I was commenting on this last week in one of my classes is that my dad was absolutely an influence on me in that sense. But, you know, I've also realized like in some ways he wasn't immune to many of the things that, that men experience, which is, I think he was isolated and lonely. Um, and as much as I connected with him, you know, we connected through I, what I would call action empathy, which we did a lot of things together. Um, and we certainly shared parts of our life, but, you know, he did share a lot about his internal world with me, you know, and, and I think in, in some ways he was actually quite stoic, um, you know, and so it was, it's this weird kind of piece that even though certainly influenced the work that I, I do, I think he also influenced in a way of kind of realizing that there's a lot of silence and suffering that happens in boys and men. You know, you talk about um, jogging with your dad. Uh, you know, I have distinct memories of being a teacher in a boys' school and how much easier it would be to engage with boys around difficult issues when you were doing something together, even if that were just walking from the boarding house to the sports field for a hockey practice or whatever it was. You know, that's, those moments of doing things together, there were doors that open that might not have happened in in an office or something else where you were sort of forcing the conversation so I just that resonated with me as you shared that yeah no, I think when I was a school counselor too it's like you know I went out at every recess like I did not I went out and played basketball and I played four square and I played catch and I would just walk around and you know that I wanted to be present with, with the students when they were doing so I could do things with them. And I think that, you know, I think particularly working with boys, I think one of the worst things you could do is just stay in your office. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're, they're hardly likely to join you in there unless they're forced to, <laughs> forced to be there. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Matt, I, I, I want us to talk a little bit about, and I know you have, um, I think in our last conversation, you mentioned you have a preferred way of referring to positive or healthy masculinities, but I'd love for you to share more about that model that you helped develop and how that might aid us in understanding men and boys. Sure. Sure. I think that, um, you know, about, I would say about 20 years ago or so, I, I began to be a little disillusioned with some of what I was reading um, and, and it essentially was this, is that I felt like as a scholar, uh, we had had a, we had a pretty good idea of, of the things that were going wrong in the lives of boys and men. And we had a pretty significant catalog of all the problems. And yet we, we didn't necessarily have much of an idea of what healthy meant. 
And I think I don't find that that's necessarily uh, isolated to this field. I think in general, when we talk about the field of mental health, for example, we're actually talking about the field of mental illness. We're not actually talking about health and that gets left out of the equation. And so it becomes a, uh, a conversation about all the things going wrong in people's lives. And as counselors or therapists, you ask people then to constantly relive all the things that are going wrong. Um, and yet this conversation about what is going right or what is going well, or where do you want to be, or at least with boys and men, and what does well even look like? And so I think that this, you know, I began to speak with some of my colleagues who had similar, I think, misgivings. And, you know, for me, I think it had a bit to do with, as I looked at what I, I thought I knew um, about the field and scholarship, I would ask myself, like, does this describe me? Does this describe my friends? Does this describe the relationships I have with uh, other men I know? And I found myself lacking, actually thinking, I'm not so sure it does, or at least it felt very incomplete. And so, um, and that's where primarily talking with a couple of colleagues of mine, Mark Stevens and Mark Caselica, um, came this notion around kind of, kind of positive masculinity um, which I think now has evolved to what I would call positive masculinities, IES, um, which in some ways now to me has evolved into, into healthy masculinities in terms of like, what is, what does healthy even look like? I wonder in your experience as a professor of counseling, a seasoned clinician, the, there's so many misconceptions I think that are flying around about boys and men's mental health. What are some of those? those misconceptions that you've experienced in, in your work? I'm not trying to be cheeky about it, but I think I, you know, my first one is that, that it actually exists, <laughs> right? This notion that, that, that men's mental health and boys' mental health is, is a thing, right? And I think what I mean by that is that even the field of men's health, for example, um, tends to be really rather narrowly defined. And it typically is defined by sexual concerns, right? And um, as opposed to kind of larger issues around like a biopsychosocial approach. And I, and I, so I think that's a big misconception is that there actually is a field of kind of men's mental health. Um, and I think maybe now we're in a bit of a um, eye-opening reactionary kind of phase, maybe coming out of, uh, you know, books and just statistics that kind of point to uh some of the significant issues impacting kind of boys and men around, let's say, let's say suicidality and, um, and violence. Um, yet there is this field of kind of men's mental health around that. So one, that's one, two is that, that, that boys and men can actually benefit from attention. Like they can greatly benefit. Um, and that they might actually enjoy it. <laughs> And what I mean by that is that my experience has been like, there's a bit of, when I do workshops, I tend to have like two groups of people. I, I tend to have people who kind of say, well, I don't have a lot of male clients. Right. And so this is, I don't know much about this and, and they don't want to come. And the other group of people who say, gosh, I have a lot of male clients and they're my favorite. <laughs> like, oh, they're great. You know? And, and I was, you know, I think part of it is, it's like, 
I would call it therapeutic space, and which I don't necessarily want to define as a therapist space. I think therapeutic space comes from a lot of places. I think that can be a classroom. It can be a place that feels safe, a place where, you know, a, a boy or a man or anyone can kind of just maybe, maybe let down their guard and be who they are. But I do think for, for boys and men, those places are rare. And so when those places exist and they have a chance to actually kind of lean into it, I think uh, men engage with this place in which they can maybe be themselves and their inner world can actually come out. So the other misconception, of course, would be is that men and boys have an inner world. Of course they do. They have a rich inner world. They have a rich emotional world. And the data suggests that that, that is true, right? Um, and so I, think, so I think some of that has a bit to do with with just kind of how we look at kind of boys and men. And I, I would say that like, in a way, part of this is tied to what I would call kind of patriarchal society, right? And kind of notions that part of that is, you know, part of kind of, I would say male power, so to speak, is a way in which you don't ask men questions about how they're doing. So, so part of it is like not actually pointing out vulnerability or asking about vulnerability. And so we do ask a boy or a man, how you're doing? They say, I'm fine. We tend to just let that go. Right. And it's a, it's a deference to kind of like not wanting to probe deeper. And yet, of course, we know that a lot of people are not fine. Um, so I, th- I think when we, when we think about that, it's, it's the other misconception then, of course, I think would be is that um, in a way, like we're offering help, we have things in place and we're, and we're just, you know, we're just waiting for kind of boys and men to come to us. And the reality is, is maybe the approaches that we have aren't necessarily working because they aren't tailored to kind of the ways that boys and men seek help. So, so that there maybe needs to be some adaptability in terms of how we approach process population. It's fascinating for me to hear you talk about those therapeutic spaces and you you mentioned the classroom there and and I think that's that's you know super important and I think a misconception for me about boys schools is that often people think that they can't be therapeutic spaces for boys and I think I think they need to be and I think it all has to do a lot with the culture that is created by teachers and leaders in a space and I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about how we might be able to foster the kind of culture in boys' schools particularly that will allow them to feel comfortable in expressing the vulnerability you were talking about, seeking help uh, for mental health issues without feeling necessarily like they're compromising their masculinity or maybe it's even that they have a freedom to know that a broader definition of masculinity is okay. I think there's lots of ways to think about supportive spaces. And I think, again, a classroom, um, I think a team, you know, like a sporting environment can be safe. I think a, an arts environment, uh, theater, music, um, band, you know, these are spaces like that. Um, but certainly academic spaces, right? I think community spaces and, and religious spaces. And I think that... And I think there's also 
a risk because there has been a history worldwide of when boys get in these spaces and, and also feel safe that they've been exploited. And so there's something that comes, I think, to us to realize that these are in a way sacred spaces that need to be protected. Yeah, that duty, that duty of care is is so important. Yeah. yeah, I think that's a that's a great way of putting it, is that duty of care. You know, and I think so I can, you know, as a parallel, I would say, like I've done a lot of work with with boys and men in groups. And you know, the group may start awkwardly, right? And it may be a handful of weeks in which there's a bit of feeling out the space. But when it works, it works. And these become like in some ways, once you kind of get boys and men into therapeutic groups, they won't leave. <laughs> right. They, they like, because there's almost like these spaces are so rare that they just hold tight inside. And so I, I, I think it just, it's my way of just kind of saying like the question you ask is a really good one. And to really ask, you know, again, when I think about the health of kind of boys and men, I think about and what spaces do they have to be themselves? Um, so when you ask this larger question around kind of like, like a school culture, you know, I think part of it is just this notion of realizing that that culture is a pretty wide net and, you know, it, it, I think one way of thinking about it might be like an ecological model, you know, which is, which is this notion of kind of, you start with the person. So if we start with that student or that boy, you know, and you begin to kind of go in in concentric circles, kind of out where, so the student in, in the classroom, maybe the grade level, then the school itself, and then the home environment and the community that surrounds, right? In a way, what, what parts of those concentric circles does the school itself have some control over or influence over? And, and I think in that sense, when you think about it, it isn't just how do I create a safe classroom, right? But how do I create a safe school community, which has to include parents, but has to include parents. It has to include coaches, it has to include teachers brought in from the outside into the school setting. And in a sense, like, do you have a shared vision for what this looks like? And so what I would say around this is that kind of school culture in my eyes is actually what you're talking about are, are actually social norms. So what are the social norms within a school setting that promotes behavior? So we know that norms drive behavior. So when people understand what is normative for a certain setting, they, they aspire to have behavior that matches it. So this notion here is if you want to change behavior in a school setting, then most effectively is you change the norm actually. So the other way of thinking about it is that if you're, if I'm in a, a group in which the norm is to not ask for help, right. Then I won't ask for help. Or if I do, I realize I'm, I'm a deviant from that. Right. And I may ask for help, but I might keep it very quiet. Right. So then it becomes, you know, in a way, my seeking help is stigmatized, right? Um, however, on the flip side of that, if I'm a, in a group in which seeking help, for example, is promoted, meaning that seeking help is okay, and, and I know that because the leaders of my group kind of talk about it or actually do it, 
then there's very few barriers for me to seek help within that, that norm. So I, I think when we think about like, cause I think this is a really, in some ways, this may be one of like the biggest issues for a boys school who have, who have an interest in promoting mental health or have a promotion and, or have an interest in promoting inclusiveness, for example, um, is to really think about like, what are the social norms within these concentric circles, right. Of, of your school setting. And that's not easy work, is it? <laughs> you know, it's no, one thing to say <laughs> norms influence behavior, but, but you need the commitment <laughs> of yeah. everyone in that institution to buy into the vision, don't you? Yeah. It's not a three person committee. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I mean, it starts there, right. But then it starts with, I would say it starts with staff and teachers, right? But it also starts with with stakeholders, like parents and boys too. <laughs> it's like you, you bring them in too, and like you have to listen to them. <laughs> like you have to you have to enter the world of a boy. Yeah, and that agency that that they have in expressing or just knowing that their voices matter, that they have a place around the table is, is really powerful. I think many of our yeah. schools have experienced that. Yeah, absolutely. Cause it's not enough to say mental health is important. So, so do it right. It, it's and no one's going to argue, argue with the fact that it's important. Right. <laughs> right. Right. But for the, for the boys that probably misses them because the real question would it be is, how does like, how does mental health, for example, so for the boy, how does sadness and how does anger, how, how is, you know, what is the norm around sadness and anger amongst the boys that he spends time with and what is permissible and what's not permissible. So when we think about one's masculinity, for example, like what is the social norm in a group around, around masculinity and is there space for a kind of variation. So is there space to kind of be you or is the social norm that you must essentially um, conform to a more dominant notion and then in a sense have a very restrictive kind of idea of masculinity. I know we'll, we'll talk about this a lot, but it, you know, if you turn off the podcast right now, you know, you know, what I would say is like the take home message is, when it comes to boys and men and it comes to masculinity, health is actually being adaptive and flexible. Right. And we know that the majority of issues that boys and men experience on the negative side have a bit to do with a very rigid orientation in, in terms of, of their gender norms. Um, so that notion around culture, it's like, how do you create a space in which, in which you allow kind of the boys within that space to be adaptive and flexible to what they actually feel. Join me and Matt for the next part of our conversation about boys' mind-body connection in part two of this episode, which is also available now.